Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXLAM and FM and podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And you can find us at nhtalkradio.com for a live stream. Today's show is brought to you by Rudig Realty, serving the greater Concord area and surrounding communities. Rudig Realty's professionals make selling or buying your property understandable, easy, and low stress. Rudig Realty, integrity, respect, care, professionalism. Visit RudigRealty.com. That's R-U-E-D-I-G Realty.com. I'm very pleased today to welcome as my guest a true leader for New Hampshire. Jack Savage. Jack, welcome to Capital Close-Up. Thank you very much, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Jack Savage is president of the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. And what's really interesting is that Jack uh, comes from the newspaper, magazine, and book publishing business, former editor of New Hampshire Profiles Magazine, publisher of New Hampshire Seacoast Sunday newspaper, operator of his own company, Carriage House Publishing. He's a founding board member and past president of the New Hampshire Writers Project. And uh, he has helped notably facilitate the Forest Society's conservation of more than 2,000 acres in the Moose Mountains range. Everybody in New Hampshire uh, owes you a debt of gratitude, Jack, for your work. And we're happy to have you on the show. Well, thanks, Paul. I will tell you that when I was VP of Communication Outreach, that I would frequently observe that um, I didn't really do anything, um, and I didn't really know anything. All I ever did was talk about what other people do and what other people know. And guess what? By becoming president, that is even more true today. <laughs> you know, that's that's the that's a pretty wonderful thing. I mean, um, I, when I was a congressman, I, I kind of felt that way too. I I felt that uh, luckily I I had a really good staff composed of very smart young people who really knew their subject areas and could help me boil things down to something pithy enough that made sense when when I said it, and I could even understand it. Um, because you know most people get into jobs like that, and people think you know a lot. Well. You actually um, uh, you you get good at faking it. So uh, right. Well, I try I, not to fake it too often, but um, I, I, what I can do is rely on the people who work at the Forest Society or volunteer for the Forest Society for their wealth of experience and wealth of knowledge. And um, so, <clears throat> the more I can remember about what they tell me, the better off I am. Well, I'm curious. So. I'm how how did you um, were you born in West Virginia in the family's lumber mill? I mean, what tell, tell us a little bit about the the family uh, background in West Virginia and the lumber mill. Yeah, so um, I'll I'll try to keep this short. But you know, my family came to um, New England originally, settled in Maine back in the 18th century, and then it's kind of an American story, you know, gradually migrated west. And my particular branch of the Savage clan uh, settled first in Ohio um, because they heard rumors of land that had actual dirt um, as opposed to the rocky soils of coastal Maine. And, um, and then from there, um, uh, the, my particular ancestors uh, moved to West Virginia and, and were involved in the timber industry and ultimately, ran the Charleston Lumber Company. Uh, 
And that was sort of a 20th century thing. And by the time it came to me, um, uh, the family had sold that business. Um, But my childhood was spent um, not living in West Virginia. I was actually born in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, Was um, my childhood was spent traveling to visit relatives in uh, West Virginia, my grandparents in particular, and and the family still has a hunting camp up in um, uh, Pendleton County, West Virginia, which is a favorite place to go. And so I grew up um, wandering around the those Appalachian forests um, and really came to enjoy just being outside. It's it's a really remarkable experience to have as a kid, and I hope. Um, kids growing up today can have that same experience to be let go to run free and play in the woods. And the, the hunting camp I referenced was in an inholding surrounded by national forest and it was well down a, a dirt road. And so there wasn't really a whole lot uh, of threatening, none of the stranger danger you might have on a local playground. Um, and so I was from a fairly young age, able to wander around and play in creeks and go explore and go hiking and go camping out on my own and scare the wits out of myself by hearing every little screeching critter overnight, even as a young kid. And I really enjoyed that. And I think that's where my conservation ethic um, originated. And it was really my wife who um, caused me to end up settling in New England. She's from Kittery Point, Maine. And, um, and so, um, we uh, ended up settling here in New Hampshire because we, we like it a lot and, and we haven't um, faltered on that. Well, it's, you know, it's so interesting. You, you raise uh, a very important point that perhaps has become more poignant with the recent uh, pandemic that we're experiencing, which is um, what it means to be able to get outside and just play especially for kids these days who are uh, more often than not hunched, hunched over, uh, eyes fixed on screens, um, small little small screens. Uh, and, and what passes for play these days uh, often seems to be um, manufactured by somebody else instead of self-created. And that sense of being out in the wild, in the wilderness with you and your wits and your fantasies and your games um, is pretty important as uh, to people. It's important to humans, I think. It goes, it goes way, way back. And it's really critical not to lose that. Yeah, and I, you know, that's been one of the dominant narratives over the last 15 years, that kids aren't getting outside, that they're addicted to screens and so forth. And I think there's, there's research to back that up. At the same time, here in New Hampshire, we are really about the out of doors. And if you look at, at, at the wealth of places we have to go explore that are open to the public, including, you know, the 194 society reservations that spread across the state, um, there are ample opportunities to go outside and explore and play, as well as, you know, the reality has been, especially since last March and the beginning of the pandemic, that people have been doing exactly that. And to the extent that you, you probably remember last April and May and June, it was a bit of a problem. There were places that were overwhelmed. And um, you know, our staff got busy and, and started a hike local campaign to make sure people knew that not everybody had to go to Mount Major or Mount Monadnock in order to go outside. Those are, those are iconic places, wonderful 
short hikes that lead to uh, beautiful, expansive views. But there are lots of other places to go and get outside and stretch your legs and, and see out across the landscape. And um, and and we saw it, and and it was a great thing. And somewhere, somewhere in New Hampshire right now, or maybe Massachusetts or Maine, there there is more than one kid who will grow up remembering that year that his family started hiking because that was the one thing they were able to do to get outside and get exercise and, and recreate as a family unit. And that will propel them to work in conservation or some other way that, that uh, protects our natural resources. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, I grew up as a, I grew up as a city kid uh, and I was lucky enough to be able to spend some time, not in the mountains, but out by uh, blue, uh, blue salt water. And that has certainly stuck with me uh, my whole my whole life. And um, I keep thinking of all the people in the cities who uh, are thinking about coming to visit New Hampshire to take advantage of the forests and the mountains and the hikes, um, and for whom New Hampshire is a a place of recreation. And you know the word is so interesting when you think about rec recreate. Um, and and the, the etymology of the word recreation is all about recreating. Um, and there's no better place than, than, than our granite state and its beautiful forests and hills and mountains and landscape. Let, and, and we're going to talk about the work of the Forest Society and, and, and weave it through as we, as we speak. But I'm, I, I'm always curious uh, about my guests' backgrounds because uh, there are lessons, individual lessons to be learned. And, and then it's always just interesting to hear how people arrive at, at, at what, you know, at their, their path. And what is that path? And sometimes it's a straight line, but sometimes it's not exactly a straight line. It's kind of like an offshoot of something else. And in your case, you apparently spent a lot of time and still do as a writer and publisher. And I'm curious about that. How did, how did you get into uh, publishing? When did you uh, know that you were a writer? And, um, and, and how did that how did that relate to your work in the Forest Society, if at all? Sure. So I, I think writing was something that um, came somewhat naturally to me. Um, and I suspect that's because from a very, very early age, um, my mother in particular read to me. And so uh, it, was, it, it was a family activity to sit around uh, reading. Um, and, um, and, and so you, you become a reader and, and then you, um, over time learn to put a few words together and write. I'm not sure I still uh, would characterize myself as a writer. I write in order to achieve other things. The wonderful thing about being a reporter is, is that if you're naturally curious, it gives you permission to go ask people like you do right now on your radio show, um, what they're doing and why and what's involved. And so as a reporter, you get to pick up the phone and I used to pick up the phone, now you send an email, but um, pick up the phone and start talking to somebody and understand some interesting aspect of it and convey that to some reader, whether it's in a newspaper or a magazine. So my first job in New Hampshire was with New Hampshire Profiles Magazine, which I don't think it exists today, um, but at the time back in the 80s, 
um, was a statewide glossy four color magazine um, that, that emerged out of the old New Hampshire Troubadour for sure. those who remember that. Sure. Um, and, um, uh, and, and that was a wonderful job. It gave me the opportunity to go around the state and learn about the people of New Hampshire and the places of New Hampshire. So very quickly, although I wasn't a native, I became to know certainly the iconic places and, and people of New Hampshire. And um, from there was uh, New Hampshire Seacoast Sunday newspaper, um, which was a great um, weekly uh, newspaper. People like, I'm sure you know, Bert Cohen. And, you bet. And he was a writer there back in the day. And Jack McEnany, now was up in the Whites, uh, was a writer there. And um, there, there's still a number of people around who, uh, Dave Solomon was the uh, New Hampshire Seacoast Sunday. He's um, worked for the Portsmouth Herald and then, um, uh, National Telegraph, and then for the Union Leader, and now still, even though semi-retired, he's still writing for the Union Leader. Um, so there's a whole group of us who who graduated from uh, New Hampshire Seacoast Sunday, um, and uh, I spent a brief stint at the uh, Portsmouth Herald. That's back when it was owned by the Thompson Company, and and that's what really convinced me then that I didn't want to be um, involved in organi- in a in a publication that relied on advertising. Um, I, I, and I made a conscious decision to move to books um, because books, you're selling the value of the content. You're not selling um, the, the eyeball of the reader. Uh, and I think that changes the dynamic of the content. And books obviously also allow you to uh, go in a little bit deeper into a, a topic in a newspaper or magazine article. And um, from then it's really about taking what you already know about and leveraging it to advance yourself as a writer or editor or publisher or what have you. And that's kind of what I did through a series of jobs. My, my move from, from that career, and I think it's true that uh, in, in the era that, that I've lived in, you didn't have one career, you had at least three careers, if not more. Yep. Um, and um, it's probably even more so today. And and what, what was consistent was that we wanted to be in New Hampshire. And if you want to live in New Hampshire, and if you want to move forward in a career, um, sometimes what you have to do is reinvent yourself. Um, I had the opportunity to move to New York or move other places and, and get uh, big jobs doing big things and big corporations um, and didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in New Hampshire. And that means reinventing yourself. Um, in the case of the Forest Society, um, I was very involved in my local town. You kind of went through some of the things I was involved in, became very interested in conservation as one strategy for protecting the, the, what we care about in terms of our, um, our quality of life here in New Hampshire. And, uh, and really, I took my writing and editing skills and managed to talk the then President Forrester, Jane Diffley, into um, letting me be VP for communications and outreach and married those um, communication skills with um, uh, an interest in conservation that came out of my work in my community and, and go from there. And that's been, you know, what will probably be my uh, last career. You know, it's, it's such uh, a New Hampshire story to hear you speak about um, a really interesting uh, early career 
uh, and the way it married with your work as a volunteer at the town level, because you know, in here, here in our in our state, um, we're we're a volunteer kind of state. Everything, you know, the towns run on volunteer boards. Uh, local politics is, um, I don't know. I suppose it's the kind of the state sport. I would say, um, you know, my I didn't come up through local politics. I kind of. I called myself an accidental congressman. I, I just went for it because uh, as a friend, as a friend said, when I was contemplating uh, running for office, he said, you know, what you really care about is federal policy. So uh, you really ought to just run for federal office. And I thought about it. And so I, that's, 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 where I, that's where I went for my period of time as a citizen. But your service as moderator, selectman, chair of the planning board and the ZBA gives gave you an extraordinary view of what land management and planning and zoning and uh, the preservation of open space and how all the challenges of modern life encroaching on open space uh, our forests and our lands uh, was was going to work and how important how important it was so it's a uh, it's a real, it's a New Hampshire story of all, of, uh, of all the people who uh, spend a lot of time doing that, that really, that really critical work. I, I have one other question about background before we jump into the work of the Forest Society. And I'm curious about your publishing company. Do you still have it? And uh, is it, is it gone now? But what kind of books did you publish? So um, that company is gone now, and, and it was probably uh, a good thing that I ended up going to the work for the Forest Society um, back in 2005. Um, I kept it going for a little while, but, but the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009 would have wiped me out um, as a publishing company. And I was focusing on books, and uh, you know, I think books are still viable, and, and I think there's actually been a resurgence of the independent bookstore and uh, books are still uh, hugely important as part of the way that we uh, tell our stories as a society. Um, and there's a permanence to them and there's, a, and there's an aesthetic to book reading that uh, I, I read things on Kindle all the time, but it's just not the same. And, um, uh, and so I, I, I think they will continue, but um, as a publisher, I need to either get big and, 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 and capitalize in a larger way in order to maintain my position in the market or get out. And I chose to get out and, and given the great recession, I was, um, uh, I was, that was probably a, a good move on my part. Um, not particularly intelligently, just sort of by happenstance, but um, I was following what was interesting to me. I was following and, you know, I, I pursued, pursued working with the Forest Society because that was what interested me most. And, you know, if there's any advice to anyone, it's pursue what interests you most because it's probably what you're going to work hardest at figuring out how to make work. Um, and it doesn't always lead to uh, riches, but, but it can lead to a, a reasonable lifestyle and a certain amount of happiness. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the subject matter, it was a nonfiction publisher that focused on um, uh, some uh, horse books. And, and that, was, that was partly because that's what um, we knew something about. It was also partly because uh, for a business strategy that were, uh, back in the day, that was when Barnes and Noble and Borders, if you remember Borders, um, uh, dominated retail sales and, and, and it was difficult for a, a um, independent publisher to, to get in those stores. I was able to do it, 
but having a uh, another market, another wholesale market like tax shops, um, was a strategy from a business standpoint to to grow as a small independent publisher. Man, oh man, what a how interesting. Well, so you joined the Forest Society and started uh, started communicating. Um, we have a few minutes left in in this segment. Um, the New Hampshire. Uh, the, the Forest Society in New Hampshire is uh, a, a really extraordinary organization. Um, it's, an, it's a national model. Uh, it manages to, the organization has achieved an, an enviable reputation for its work. Uh, it is an organization that is beloved uh, all across the political spectrum. Um, you know, often, uh, issues around the environment and, and and to some extent land conservation um, is wrapped up at least in my mind and I may be I may be incorrect about this but with environmental environmental issues and uh, sadly in some in some quarters environmental issues uh, have become political um, uh, between the left and the right for 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 no good reason I believe. But they have become political, and the Forest Society has managed to hew the uh, to to hew to its mission and its values in a way that uh, has attracted support all across the political spectrum, uh, and business spectrum uh, in uh, New Hampshire. That's that's a singular, it's a singular achievement. Um, and in just a few seconds that we have left, has that been a conscious uh, effort to, to, to make sure that the Forest Society is speaking to everybody and not trying to get caught up in any pol politics that may revolve around the environment? Well, that is a, it's a component of being a nonprofit, a 501c3 nonprofit. We don't get involved in partisan issues, certainly. Um, I, I also, I would just say that that's New Hampshire. Right. Um, we, we have people who might describe themselves as being uh, on the far left and people who might describe themselves as being on the far right. But it, but when it comes to New Hampshire, everybody's in favor of New Hampshire. And the Forest Society is very much a proponent of keeping uh, New Hampshire's forests as forests and keeping New Hampshire, New Hampshire. And Let's, that's an I'll easy thing, yep. easy thing for lots of people to to get on board with. Jack, can you. Um... Can you tell our uh, listeners a little bit about how the Forest Society began? What was its impetus? Sure. And we just celebrated our 120th anniversary back on February 6th. We were founded back in 1901, really to help advance uh, a new idea at the time, which is the idea that there ought to be a, a national, national forest east of Mississippi River. And in particular, in, in the White Mountains, we were suffering at the hands of some unsustainable logging activities. And as a result, there were fires and floods um, because of just of the wholesale whacking of the wood resource on the whites. And, and we were founded to help pass what ultimately was called the Weeks Act, um, which enabled um, the, the creation of, of the White Mountain National Forest, Pisgah National Forest down North Carolina, all of the national forests east of the Mississippi. And it was all about water protection. It was about in uh, a political coalition that, that formed around this idea was born not just those who cared about um, scenery and, uh, and, and environmental issues as we might call them today, 
but also about economic issues. The mill owners of Manchester and Nashua and Lowell and Lawrence were concerned over the irregular water supply that were powering their mills at the time. The, the Merrimack River, which was watershed, is up in the Whites, was experiencing you know wild fluctuations of floods and droughts, and and that's not good for being able to to power your mills consistently. And so this was sort of cutting um, cutting uh, edge research. The idea that um, the the forested slopes from which your water began played a huge role in, in the quality and consistency of the water flow out of the, those high grounds down to the mouth of the Merrimack in Newburyport. I'd, I'd take a moment to uh, bring you forward real quickly. We just um, released last summer a documentary about the Merrimack River that people might like to watch. And it's really a continuation of that work we started way back when in which you know, the, the Merrimack River is still one of the most threatened watersheds in the country. Um, and it's because of, of um, our propensity to um, uh, develop um, uh, right uh, along the uh, step across streams and, and tributaries that feed the river, um, uh, all of the pavement that's, that we end up laying down uh, up and down the lower Merrimack River in protect, particular, that, that threatens its, its, the water quality and its viability as a water resource. And so we have a, a, a documentary about the river, about the nature of that threat, and about the solutions to that. And there are solutions. Um, the documentary, it, it, you can watch it online now, but it's also gone on, uh, I just found out today, it's going to be on um, Channel 11, New Hampshire Public Television, again, on April 1st this year. Well, the, Check our website, we'll find more details. Um, really fascinating hour long look at, at the river. And, and what's important, it's not just about it as a, a, an aesthetic natural resource, but as a driver of our economy. Our livelihood depends uh, here in New Hampshire and in Northern Mass on the, the viability of the Merrimack River. Anyway, the Forest Society went on from, from those early days of advocacy work to become, to start. Uh, um, protecting land by acquiring it, by buying it. And we focused on the iconic peaks, Mount Monadnock. We still own today 5,000 acres, including the peak of Mount Monadnock. Not a lot of people know that because we lease much of that to the state to run as Monadnock State Park, but um, there you go. Um, so um, Mount Sunapee, Mount Kearsarge, Franconia Notch, all of these were iconic places the Forest Society got involved in protecting. Our oldest reservation uh, we acquired in 1912, we still own today, that's um, Lost River, which is still run as a, um, a tourist attraction today. Um, and we're lucky to be partnering with White Mountains Attractions that operates it for us. But um, a portion of your proceeds that, that um, when you go to, to visit White Mountains ends up uh, funding our work. So go visit. Lost River this summer. So, um, hey, can I just before we go yeah. on talk tell tell us a little bit about the weeks of the Weeks Act. Uh, wondering whether sure. that Weeks is related to my good friend Dan Weeks, who is a uh, leading um, a, a environmental activist now in New Hampshire. Yes, yeah, so that is the same family, and Congressman Weeks was actually, although from uh, Lancaster, and the other notable place that, that uh, you can go visit that's associated with the family is Weeks State Park up on, the, the, uh, on Mount Prospect up in Lancaster. 
Um, he was a congressman from uh, Massachusetts, actually. Um, but he was the one, it was the, the Weeks Act is named for him because he was um, in Congress at the time and, and put together the sort of political coalition, uh, the group of uh, both business people um, and uh, conservationists who um, lobbied to have Congress pass um, what's known as the Weeks Act. Interesting that the, the question, this is really sort of fascinating from a historical standpoint, the question in the minds of, of federal government at the time, did they have the authority to go buy land that had already been conveyed into private hands? Out West, the, the, the parks, the national parks of the day were lands that the federal government already owned and they designated as some sort of protected area, right? Um, here in the East, much of our land had already been conveyed to private hands, private landowners. So could the federal government go buy that land and hold it for some sort of public purpose? And where Congress found, um, uh, found the, the right to do that was in, in, their, um, in their power to regulate the navigability of navigable streams. And so if you come to understand that the watershed is critical to the navigability, of a mighty river like the Merrimack, then you find in there the power to buy some land to protect that watershed in order to protect the river. Yeah, and you know, you spoke um, earlier about the economic vitality and viability of New Hampshire and um, Northern Massachusetts as it, as it is impacted by the great Merrimack River. Um, I guess a naive question, would be, well, you know, maybe in the old days when uh, there was river traffic and, and, and all that, but these days, I mean, you know, you can canoe on the Merrimack, but it's not like, uh, not like you're going to drive your logs down the Merrimack and there isn't that much boat traffic on it except for an occasional kayak. So why do we think that, that, that it's still uh, vitally important today? Why, do, why does it matter? Sure. So um, we have, uh, we still have a power plant on the river um, uh, down in Bow. Some people don't like it because it burns coal, but it needs the river in order to operate. Um, we, we um, more and more, we are relying on the river for our drinking water resources. Um, part of the footage uh, in the documentary I mentioned is filmed in the uh, Coca-Cola uh, plant uh, down in um uh, Londonderry, um, and uh, they are the single biggest consumer of Manchester Waterworks, and and uh, they are providing jobs and and manufacturing a product that's being distributed across northern New England. Um, and that story can be repeated over and over and over again. Everywhere we look, we are uh, we are relying on the river for um, for for uh, the the livability and economic vitality of our region. We still use it as a place where we um, ideally clean our sewage before um, uh, sending it off to the ocean. One of the issues that, that the documentary talks about is the fact is that um, there, there are these CSOs, combined sewage overflows that can create some uh, water health issues. And, and you know there's an ongoing push to change that and it needs to be changed. So. The river is really incredibly important, and, and it's not just about um, tourism, it's, it's about industry. So when, 
when the Forest Society, with an eye on uh, the importance of the river uh, to our economy and our, and our land, uh, set out, um, was the idea to, to acquire land contiguous to the river in order to um, make sure that uh, its flow was uh, regulated in some way naturally? Was that the idea? It is one of the big ideas, and it's not just along the river, it's also along the tributaries to the river, the whole watershed. That's exactly the idea. The cheapest way to ensure water quality, uh, quality wildlife habitat, wildlife diversity, is to protect um, the wooded buffer along a water course. And uh, it's a lot cheaper than trying to clean dirty water, made dirty by uh, washing across a road or, or parking lot or anything like that. And that's exactly what we're doing now. Right now we're, we're working on uh, an addition to our stillhouse forest, which is north of Concord. Um, we're still trying to raise some money to make that happen. It's, it's an additional 1200 feet of frontage directly on the river. Um, we're working on um, another project in, involving the Morrill Farm. I'm sure Concord listeners know the Morrill Farm. That's a great story, you know, uh, Rob Morrill. Uh, is a dairy farm and he's providing milk to a local um, milk processing plant. Uh, it doesn't just get any more local than that. And, and we're trying to put a, uh, an easement on a, an additional piece of land he's adding to the farm to create the viability of that operation. And in doing so, um, trying to improve the, um, uh, the protection of the river um, when uh, farms like that flank um, its immediate shore. Um, so yeah, uh, protecting land, whether we're doing it by buying it in fees in a stillhouse forest or acquiring an easement that permanently protects um, a, a local farm are ways that we protect um, the landscape along the river. So what are some of the uh, advocacy uh, operations, the advocacy efforts that the Forest Society makes? Are they, are they local? Are they at the state level in Concord? Are they federal? So typically they are not necessarily local unless there's some direct impact on one of our forest reservations or other conservation interests. Um, we, we try to let local communities make local decisions um, it's the New Hampshire have, way. Yeah, unless we have a particular stake in it. Um, we do um, spend a lot of time over at the State House. A um, number of bills we, we track um, every year. Um, there, uh, we, we have been both, uh, we've played both defense and offense, to be honest. Um, in terms of offense, we, we, along with other partners, we're strong proponents of the LCHIP program, Land and Community Heritage Investment Program, which has protected uh, land and historic structures across the state. They've done a wonderful job since coming into existence in uh, the early 2000s and, and have really created a legacy of, of protecting, again, what makes New Hampshire, New Hampshire. Uh, in other cases, um, uh, we, we try to... Um, Make sure that we're, we're spending an appropriate amount on, on protecting the environment. Um, and there's always somebody who has some idea that, that um, has unintended consequences that so we try to fend off. Um, we also are very active on the, um, on, at the federal level. You probably remember that when you were congressman. Um, and, and that may be 
you know, working to ensure that the, the federal resources that exist um, can come to New Hampshire and do what they need to, what they're designed to do in New Hampshire. One of the great success stories is the Forest Legacy Program, um, in which um, private landowners of, of working forest lands can permanently protect their lands, keep them as forests, while keeping it, you know, in the ownership of the private uh, landowner. I mean, if you want to maintain a viable uh, in, uh, working forest, and that's another one in New Hampshire's um, longtime uh, industries, um, you need to have strategies to uh, keep the, the resource itself. And, and Forest Legacy has been a um, very successful program, and New Hampshire has been very successful at using it. Um, just this past year, you'll remember that the Land and Water Conservation Fund was fully funded for the first time uh, since its inception decades right. ago, right. in which monies from offshore drilling, you know, the, the, it, these offshore drilling contracts were permitted, were allowed, were authorized by Congress with the deal that a certain uh, amount of uh, money from those would go to land and water conservation around the country. And that yet Congress never fulfilled that promise until just this last summer when they finally did. And uh, there've been a few little hiccups uh, down in DC with the uh, transition down there, but um, uh, I fully anticipate that New Hampshire will benefit from that by improving some of our, our parks and other areas um, through that funding. Um, which is legit, I think, right? So if you're going to um, cause some uh, environmental harm and offshore drilling is, is clearly going to involve that, um, one of the ways that we, that we, we justify that, um, and you can argue whether we ought to or not, I appreciate that, um, is to mitigate. And, and you mitigate by uh, protecting other things um, that, that try to make up for any harm you you cause. Um, again, it's a controversial topic. Um, people, a lot of people don't like mitigation. They, they would rather not cause the harm in the first place. Um, but uh, I would, I think it's important to look at the whole and especially once a pro, once you've made a deal, you know, uh, stick to the deal and um, fund that, that uh, conservation efforts um, through the LWCF. Let's talk a little bit about some of the education uh, efforts and programs that the Forest Society uh, runs and maintains, um, including about some of the centers for education that the Forest Society has built with an eye towards um, being um, uh, good to the environment. Yeah, sure. So, so many people will, many listeners will also know our Senior Director of Education, Dave Anderson. He's one of the hosts of Something Wild on uh, New Hampshire Public Radio. Um, and, and we also uh, write in the Union Leader a Forest Journal column. Uh, I used to be a more frequent um, byline there, but others um, carry that load instead. Um, and we have a, a variety of programs. You know, the last year has been really interesting. We haven't been able to to take people, do or do our most favorite thing, which is to take a few people out into the woods and, and tell them a few things that they uh, might have questions about in terms of what's going on in the woods. But instead we've done a lot of uh, uh, things online. Uh, we just had a, a, a fascinating session uh, earlier this week on uh, a, a scientist from Hubbard Brook, which is a research forest uh, up in, um, I think Woodsville, New Hampshire. And, um, 
in, in which she has been tracking uh, the regeneration of the sugar maple, iconic species in New Hampshire, right? A certain sure. economy built around that tree, a very valuable um, a saw log as well. And, uh, you know, the bad news is that regeneration is declining among sugar maples and, and they're trying to understand why. And one of the takeaways I got from that, there was a, there was a pretty demonstrable uh, impact of acid rain. That was the big thing you'll remember. We all were talking about in sure. the 70s and 80s, right? Yep. And acid rain was coming from factories in Ohio and uh, windblown uh, effects that would then be washed out of the sky and rain in New Hampshire. Right. Well, turns out it looks like that there was a, 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 a significant impact on sugar maples by um, the changes in the soil that acid rain um, and, and um, uh, they've been following that up. Anyway, th this is all part of what we try to learn. We, 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 we think of ourselves as being science-based. We're not making this stuff up. We're trying to um, learn ourselves um, um, what's going on in the woods and why, and then convey that to other people. And here's the cool thing. In New Hampshire, everybody loves to know that stuff, right? It's not good enough just to sort of take a walk in the woods. You immediately walk in and you start asking yourself, what's going on with that plant? What's going on with that tree? What's, what's that uh, wildlife I see? You'll want to know. You'll want to know. And we try to provide that. We have... Um, we have the Conservation Center in Concord um, and, and what we call the floodplain, but about 100 acres down along the river uh, that we use for some of our educational programs. Hasn't been much of that um, getting together in the groups uh, in the last year. But what we're most excited about um, perhaps is uh, an initiative with Society North, uh, ROCKS, Reservation, which we run as a Christmas, um, where we do a lot of educational programming. Um, we had a fire a couple of years ago that burned down our educational facility, and uh, we're on track. We're, we're currently capital campaign to that facility, and really take it as a moment to reinvest in in that place to and see it as a launching pad to do more and better work north of the notches. Um, sometimes, and you may have you may have found um, this to be true, Paul, in your work. When you say, hi, I'm from Concord and I'm here to help, it doesn't resonate very well. So I think it is really important to be part of a community. And I think from by being operating out of a base in Bethlehem where we have uh, deep roots ourselves, um, we can be more effective in, in affecting some conservation uh, work and uh, more conservation work north of the notches. Lastly, I would say that um, we're, we're finishing up renovating uh, a building at um, Creek Farm in Portsmouth. That's we have three reservations in cities, one in Concord, one in Rochester, and Creek Farm in Portsmouth. Lovely place. I encourage everybody to go there. Uh, and we have uh, an education center there where the Gundalo Company runs uh, day camps during the summer. Uh, we'll be running our own programs. Um, we're hiring an educational coordinator to operate out of there. And, and that's a newly renovated space that we have great hopes for. So, uh, Jack, I just want to uh, tell you how much I've enjoyed the conversation and uh, how important I know the work that you and all your colleagues at the Forest Society are doing, especially as we confront climate change and what it means for the changing landscape and how we can all pitch in uh, to do something about it. So your educational efforts and your advocacy efforts uh, are really important. This is Capital Close-Up. I'm Paul Hodes. And we'll be back next week with more 
Capital Close-Up.